Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Today we sit down with Martin Wolf, a British journalist who focuses on economics. He's the associate editor and chief economics commentator of the Financial Times. We sit down today to chat about economics, what economists need to do, uh, this policy response to COVID-19, and what still needs to come. We hope you enjoy. Well, I mean, first off, um, thank you very much for joining us. Like, I really do appreciate that you've taken time out of time out of your day to come chat. First, how are you adjusting to lockdown? Um, I'm actually adjusting pretty well so far. It's easy for me in that I continue to do my normal work. It's easy to do it online. Uh, we operate, the FT is operated now completely online for three months. It doesn't change very much daily life. I don't commute, obviously. I don't meet my colleagues. I don't go and travel as much as I used to travel very regularly about every week. But the essential writing and other work is the same. The analytical work is the same. If I call people, it's the same. Um, I'm here living with my wife, which uh, I've been doing for a um, nearly half a century, so that's not very new. We have um, children and grandchildren. Um, some of them, one of them, live close, and we see them at least. Uh, so life has changed, um, uh, but it's perfectly pleasant. The only things I really miss, in all truth, are actually meeting my family, physical contact with my grandchildren, all the normal things that human beings care about. Uh, in the longer run, I think uh, being locked in in this way would get a bit depressing. Um, I'd miss travel. Uh, we have a small house in Italy, which we've been going to for 20 years, a place I've been going to for almost all my life. And uh, I'd miss terribly, could never go back. So I would say three months, okay. A year, I don't know. The rest of my life, unbearable. So we'll see how this goes. Well, fingers crossed for the future then. So you've had quite a few different careers. Um, you did postgraduate studies, you worked at the World Bank, you worked for a think tank, and then finally the FT journalism. I mean, all three, all of these are pretty cool career paths in their own right. So what was it that drew you to one? And then what from that drew you on to the next one? So, um well, most of it's serendipity, actually. But uh, basically, I went up to Oxford in 65 to read classics. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, that went pretty well. I did pretty well at it. But after the first part of the classics course, which is called MODS, after five terms, I decided I wanted to switch to politics, philosophy, and economics. And the main reason was that I was then very interested in politics political life. It's the 60s, which was very politically intense decade, as you probably know. And I thought I couldn't understand politics without understanding economics. And that was the attraction. So I did as many economics papers as I could. I had no idea how they would go, but I found I enjoyed economics. It was fascinating. And I like the other subject, philosophy and politics too. So I decided to do a graduate degree. And that turned out to be at Nuffields. I did the MPhil there. But I decided, uh, and I wasn't surprised, I never really wanted to be an academic. I didn't want to spend my life teaching. And I was reasonably sure that my abilities, whatever they were, 
were not those of a truly original academic. Um, I thought I had real abilities, but those were not them. Uh, and I wanted to do something sort of was bound up with the real world. Uh, so I thought about things, and a friend of mine who actually was working there, former Oxford Don, suggested I apply to the World Bank. And I'd become very interested in development and development economics. So a number of people at the Nuffield working very actively in that area. So I applied to the World Bank. And I had 10 fascinating, extraordinary years there. I learned an immense amount about the world. Uh, it was the 70s. It was a period when people hoped that you know, the World Bank was the center of the development challenge. And we hoped we would be transformative. And we had some successes and many failures. I learned a lot there and I made many very good friends. But after 10 years, I realized I didn't want to spend my life as a bureaucrat. Uh, I could see my career path would be that of increasingly being a bureaucrat and not doing the issues, work on the issues I was interested in. Uh, so I decided to leave. I also wanted to come home. By then, we'd, I'd already been married for 10 years, but I wanted to have my children grow up in Britain. So we decided to come back. And at that stage, I was very interested in trade policy. And trade and development was a big subject at this time. So I went to work as director of studies for something called the Trade Policy Research Center, which worked on global trade issues, particularly the then nascent Uruguay round, which was the last really important world trade round. And so I did a lot of work on that. I enjoyed it very much again, but I decided I didn't really like think tanks. It was too, a bit too remote. And uh, in any case, the finances of a British think tank were really very weak. Uh, it was clear it was a fold, and there was a question, what would I do next? And then completely out of the blue, because it wasn't my plan, just as some the, the person who ran the TPRC asked me to join it, then the same way um, uh, the, the editor of the FT, who I knew a number of articles on world trade issues for him, asked me completely out of the blue via an intermediary whether I would like to be the chief economic writer at the FT. And that struck me as fascinating and would suit my desire for a broad canvas. So I could write about lots of different issues. And it would be mean I was engaged directly in public affairs and politics. What I'd always trusted me to that. And it turned out to suit me very well a great deal of freedom. And um, after nine years there, I became the chief economics commentator, and I've been that ever since. So I see that the core of my career is a certain sort of interests, certain set of interests, and uh, a desire to resolve puzzles and do things, will of views of things. But I never wanted to be a bureaucrat, never wanted to be an academic, really didn't want to be a politician, though I did think about that in the 70s. And um, so this is how I ended up doing what I've done. What do you see as your your goal like at the FT? Do you see yourself as in the business of educating, um, entertaining, influencing policy debates, or some combination of above? Uh, I suggest the policy one, because obviously it is the case that there's certain policy issues that you the themes that reoccur in your work, things like climate change or Brexit. So do you see yourself as catalyzing change there? I thought about this. Well, I have a number of reactions. First of all, I think it's very important for somebody in my job not to be very self-important. Uh, um, so I think of myself first and foremost simply as a voice. Um, 
whether or not I bring about any change, that you can't, as it were, have a goal. That is a goal because, I mean, it would be ridiculously self-important and in any case, it's far too indirect. Uh, so I feel think I have the a voice um, and I happen to have the benefit of a particularly powerful platform if you're writing about economics. Obviously, the Financial Times is one of the world's most respected platform for writing about economics with a pretty wide readership of a certain sort of elite opinion, clearly. Um, and uh, that platform allows me to be uh, a witness to what I think is true and right at any particular stage um, and bringing to bear my views, attitudes, uh, um, analytical capabilities on issues that I think are important, uh, important to the readers and important to the world, I hope often both, and to which I can contribute something in clarifying uh, what's going on, what the issues are and what we should do. Um, and as I said, in the end, it's... It's that of uh, a witness, a teacher, uh, an analyst, some combination of these things, um, um, which I think is and always has been um, an important role in, one of many, of course, but an important role in um, a society like ours. So when you look back at your work, long career at the Financial Times, which, pe which pieces do you think stand out as those which you're proud of? Which do you have framed on your wall? I don't have any framed on my wall. Uh, I have um, a general inclination to forget what I've written, um, partly because I don't want to be burdened by my own past, uh, partly because it's very self-referential. So unlike many... Journalists, I've never published collections of my articles. Um, sometimes it's been suggested that I should, but I've always preferred to write a fresh book on something and leave people to dig out my articles if they want. Um, the, uh, um, the articles that I'm most proud of, um, I probably couldn't refer really to specific uh, um, to specific uh, specific ones, uh, because I've covered such an immense range of issues. But there are a number of judgments I made that appeared in a number of quite a large number of columns uh, over a particular period, which um, of which I'm um, particularly proud because I think they turned out to be. Right, for instance, I argued after 9-11 that, just these are some examples, that that would not be the end of globalization, and I was right. I argued that the Iraq war was an immensely risky and doubtful project, to put it mildly, and, and that the whole framing of uh, what we were in as a war on terror was completely wrong, and that was, I think to be right. I argued um, that earlier than that, the, the, the euro currency was a very risky project which didn't have adequate political underpinnings, which I think was also right, though people might disagree on that. I argued 
uh, I've always been in support of globalization and liberal trade, and I haven't changed my view on that. Um, uh, so you could say I can, people will either think I was right or wrong on that. Obviously, I still think I was right. Um, I, in the, but in the 2008 9 crisis, I argued very strongly for a forceful Keynesian response um, and against austerity after the crisis. Uh, a premature austerity. I think that was right. I'm quite proud of some of the columns I've written on that. I think I've written some very good columns on banking and finance and the problems of that over leverage, over reliance on highly leveraged intermediaries and the instability uh, instability it generates. Uh, climate change has become a big theme of mine now for nearly 15 years, and I'm generally proud of. I think what I have written on that has been right and uh, coherent. I believe that I was right on Brexit. Of course, we lost, uh, um, but I believe ultimately it will be proved to um, to have been um, the rights that we should stay in was the right call. And I've argued, I've written some very strong columns. On particularly in the 2016 election and the dangers involved in electing Donald Trump, which I believe were right too. Um, and I wrote one or two columns there, which I think were I'm particularly proud of, uh, um, of what this means for the American Republic, that they elected him. Um, I think what I've been writing more recently about COVID-19 and how to approach it, I've written a number of columns on that, which I... I'm also pretty proud of. So when I look back at the issues that confronted me, some of which are very long running, um, and some of which uh, are sort of immediate crises, I'm pretty, I'm mostly happy, but not altogether with the positions I've taken. Now, it should be said, and I've been made this very clear in a call in a, introduction I wrote to um, this book I mentioned on globalization and in other works, I come from all this from a very, not only a background as an economist, having studied economics and my interest in politics, but with a very specific set of values. Um, and I'm quite unabashed about those values. I'm a liberal Democrat. I believe in democracy. I believe in individual liberty. I believe uh, that um, within that context, the market economy is the least bad system we have for running economics. Um, and I believe that in sustaining such a complex political and economic system requires compromise, adjustment, reform, um, constantly. Um, so I think that, I, as I've said often in my writings, my opinions on how the world works and what we should do right now change um, over time. But my these core values have never changed. I got them from my parents and who were people who were very scarred by uh, both were refugees from Nazism and uh, and so these values are perhaps the unifying theme of my writing and analysis. 
So in your writing, you often draw parallels to events throughout history. Um, for example, in a recent article, you wrote about how the power struggle between the US and China today mirrors that of the UK and Germany in the early 1900s. What do you think is the benefit to in these pieces of historical comparisons? And how do you feel that the knowledge of history is valuable when analyzing today? Okay, these are very good questions. Um, I mean, a very large part of the answer is it's the way I think. And writing of my kind is very personal. It's an expression of oneself, one's own background, um, um, the background one has taken from one's parents, who were incomparably the most important influences in my life and my teachers, and the subjects I've taught, I've done, you know, I didn't come into this from a sort of maths, physics into economics background. I came from classics, ancient history, politics and philosophy, as well as economics. Um, and so I think in terms of history, I think in terms of human culture, I think of economics and economic life and business life as set into, obviously within the broader framework, the broader context and setting of human history and civilization in the natural world. I've obviously, that's something I've learned much more about over the last, say, two decades or so. Um, so that's just how I think, uh, and for better or worse. And I, one is who one is. And in writing in response to current events, one can only approach them in the way one thinks. And this is how I think. But there is a another very important reason for this, which is um, economics gives one a sort of analytical toolbox um, of greater or lesser sophistication. In my case, I would suppose medium sophistication, given that it's a long time since I've been in an academic setting. Um, uh, but the question always is, what is the context uh, within which, what are the assumptions on which one bases one's economic analysis or any analysis, and including political analysis? What do we have to draw on if we try to understand what's going on now? Well, the, in my own work and experience, there are basically two things we have to draw on which are useful in deciding what is relevant when we think about this problem now. The first is history. And for me, history is thousands and thousands and thousands, you know, as far back as we can go, as it were, how human societies work, how they've evolved, where our particular civilization fits into that. So that's history economic history, political history, cultural history, as much as I can understand it. And the other is, of course, the experience of other nations today. So I, that was a large part of what I got out of being at the World Bank, the comparison between different countries and societies um, in my 20s and early 30s was incredibly valuable. The lived experience of trying to understand such different countries with such a very different stages of their economic development um, and those are the things that 
enrich one's analytical capacity now. So, for example, um, I'll just give two examples. When we hit the global financial crisis, my immediate question is, well, this is not something I'd expected to happen. That was a big mistake. I hadn't expected a financial collapse of that magnitude. I'd expected some resetting, but not that. So I got it wrong. And as I've recognized and admitted in things I've written, and so I said, let's go back to the last such crisis. So you go back to the 30s and you start thinking about what people thought then. Um, and they too, they, of course, were struggling with this for the first time. Uh, I mean, they hadn't, there'd be many uh, recessions in the past and even financial crisis, but nothing on the scale of the Great Depression. So they had to invent it. We didn't have to invent it. We could go back to what the thinkers of that time, particularly Keynes and Irving Fisher and so forth, had thought. So the historical experience and the historical response to that experience was incredibly important. And basically everything that we'd been writing in the previous 20, 30 years was more or less irrelevant because no one had been writing about crises of this kind. So that's a pretty uh, um, powerful example. And then the other one, another one, which you just mentioned, but there are many other examples I could give, is great power conflict. It's pretty clear that economic uh, development of all kinds is intimately connected with the capacity of states to function internally and externally and to maintain peace. The biggest economic disruptions of, in the world are imaginable, are world wars. These aren't just political events, they're economic events, they're everything. So if you're thinking about peace and stability as a basis of normal economic life, you have to ask yourself, well, when does it break up? Well, there's lots of history on this, lots of it, and lots of thinkers about it. Um, and one of the most important was Thucydides, whom I read when I was 15. And so it's inevitable that you then start thinking, well, what are the parallels for great power conflicts? When do they end up in, in breakdowns of the political or economic order? Uh, in thinking about US-China and how it might unfold, you can have a purely theoretical approach, and there are some people who work completely theoretical models, and that's not irrelevant. But to me, those theoretical models have to be informed by experience, and the only real experience we have events like that are um, wars. Just to say in economics, if I'm asked uh, you know, for example, we, we have a lot of discussion at the moment about modern monetary theory and the role of monetary policy. So one of the questions I immediately ask inevitably is what is the difference between what they're proposing and standard Latin American macroeconomics of the last half century? Um, and why should it end up in, at all differently? Because it's not that this, these ideas haven't been tried before. We need to look at these ideas, not just as theoretical ideas, but in how they actually work out in actual real human societies in the past. That then starts making you think, oh, well, this is relevant and this is relevant. And we can't assume this about how our society will work if we're in this situation. So to me, history and understanding of different countries today is absolutely fundamental to the way I think about the world. You say that 
your perspective on economics comes from your having studied classics first. I mean, you referenced Lucidities there. Most, for most economists, that isn't true. Most economists are probably mathematicians first and foremost. But do you think that, I mean, do you think that's a shame? How do you, do you, when you look at these economists, be they policymakers or journalists, do you think they would benefit more from this knowledge of history? Um, I don't know the intellectual background of most contem contemporary economists, but I recognize most of them have, uh, certainly in recent decades, had a mathematical background. My view on this is um, that if the mathematical education they had was in the context of a broad general education of the type I would normally expect, say, in continental Europe, um, then I don't think it's an, an enormous problem. But if your intellectual background is essentially mathematical, you have no knowledge at all. Uh, essentially of history, uh, human culture, philosophy, um, uh, then I think, to put it bluntly, you don't know anything. You just don't know anything. And, um, and it is very unlikely that your response to the immense complexity of actual human policymaking in um, actual and specific situations is going to be very useful because the assumptions you make will be essentially arbitrary in deciding how things work. So things work fine in theory. What's the famous line? Um, this thing, this works fine in theory. What a pity it is that it doesn't work in practice. So uh, you're, you're a prisoner, in other words, of your assumptions and the models that your assumptions generate. And you can't really have any sensible view of whether the assumptions you're making are plausible and reasonable. So to my mind, that background is perfectly fine if you're going to do theory, economic theory, no problem at all, absolutely none. Uh, because, and that's very important. There are very important developments or if you're going to do statistical theory or whatever. But if you're actually going to do policy, then you need a lot more than your economic um, modeling capacity. Uh, if you're going to make sensible judgments about what can be done. Now that can be resolved by having teams which contain different people. But one of the problems with economists is they're very bad at interacting with people from other disciplines. They tend to despise them all, which is I think a terrible mistake. Um, so uh, I would like to have economists who are pretty broadly educated before they get into, into professional work um, and either as part of their economic curriculum or um, prior to the time when they start economics. So the fact that I had this very generalist education till I went to graduate school at Nuffield, um, you know, I was four years at Oxford and did classics and then PPE, is very important for what I do. Now, there are lots of other things that people can do, but I also think if you're going to be an economic advisor to the Treasury or the Bank of England, and you're suddenly, for example, catapulted, as they were, 
in 2007 into the midst of a colossal financial crisis, which none of them had actually worked on and really none of them had directly, or very few of them, had directly uh, um, um, uh, experienced in any way, then knowing what to do did depend in very large measure on what you knew about the 30s, what you knew about the history of central banking, what you knew about banks as institutions. I mean, one of the weirdest things is Charles Goodhart of the LSE, of course, has pointed this out. They, you know, they work with models of the economy in which there were no banks. Well, no sane person would think you could do sensible monetary policy, and particularly in a crisis, if the most important institutions in the financial system are not included in your modeling. So, uh, yeah, I think there are tremendous problems with over-narrowness. Uh, and one of the consequences of that, I think, is that economists have tended to be ignored as rather dry and ineffective, even incompetent experts. And then you just get charlatans. So that's not a good solution either. So my view is very strongly that we need economists to be quite humble and to be pretty broadly educated if they're going to be effective and useful policymakers and policy advisors. So stepping away from that discussion of economists um, and looking at the UK economy, what do you see as the main long-term challenges and how do those look in light of COVID-19? Um, this is a question which I'm grappling with at the moment for a book I've been trying to write. Um, well, I suppose um, the, the difficulty in a way is that there are so many. Um, what is our... I mean, the objective, I assume, of economic policy for a country like this is to maintain prosperity, if possible, increase it. Prosperity defined broadly in terms of the welfare of the population. Um, preserve economic stability, so far as one can. Obviously, something like COVID-19 is about from the blue, but you could be more or less resilient in your response to it. Um, and manage this within the environmental envelope, which is, of course, global, but that's important. Um, it's part of welfare. And give, I'm not an egalitarian, but make sure that the welfare of everybody counts and that everybody um, will have the capacity, at least the opportunity to lead a reasonably fulfilled life. As we are still a relatively rich country, um, this ought to be possible. I mean, these are the objectives, it seems very clearly. Now, um, what are the problems, the obstacles to achieving this? Um, well, this, a lot of here are things I've learned, and I may have made big mistakes in the past, but um, underlying trend in productivity growth in our economy has become, long before COVID-19, very weak. Our economy does pretty well for highly skilled professionals, um, successful business people, and so forth, but 
it's pretty unequal in the distribution of benefits across people and across regions. Um, we have some significant presence in some of the modern and dynamic sectors, but uh, clearly a very long tail of rather unproductive, uh, technologically undynamic uh, businesses. Um, so given our objectives and given the, those realities, we have, I think, an enormous challenge, which COVID-19 has obviously made bigger, but it's also, I think, brought home very, very clearly, something I hadn't really expected, and I should have, that the British governing system, the, the system of government of our country doesn't work very well uh, in terms of both the politicians and the government machine. And I think the response to COVID-19 and extraordinarily high death rate reveals that. So I see now Britain as a country with some very, very big economic and political problems, which needs a lot of reform to uh, make it work better. And quite a few of the, what, quite a bit of what needs to be done is not completely obvious to me. So I'm really thinking about it at the moment uh, very, really quite hard because I think some of these problems are not easy to fix. Obviously, there are things we can do to achieve greater equality. We, there are things we can do to um, um, invest more. We've been underinvesting in both the public and private sectors for years. There are obviously things in tax systems and so forth we can greatly improve. But I'm not sure at the moment what we need to do to improve the underlying dynamism of the economy, which always involves some sort of fruitful partnership between the private and public sectors. And it doesn't seem to me at the moment that we really know how to do this. Um, to its credit, and this would be the only statement on that, I would say that the present government in the current couple of respects does recognize some of these challenges, which in the form of a need to invest a hell of a lot more in science and technology, which I think is right, and innovative science and technology preserve one of our real assets in terms of our technological and scientific know-how, in particularly in our universities, and also its determination, at least as I understand it, to invest very much more in our infrastructure and particularly in, in regions which aren't working very well. Um, and all this involves enormous challenges, but I do think there are opportunities here. But I think to me, the starting point is just to understand that things haven't been working very well. And we, we need to recognize that as the starting point for doing things better. Two questions to wrap up. Um, first off, there's a lot of undergrad economic students that listen to this and our exams have just finished and we've got a very long summer ahead of us, but we can't really do much going outside. So what are five books you think that everyone should go pick up? I, I'm not going to give you economics books in, in the technical sense. Um, uh, and I um, should say that I at the FT have been doing 
sort of summer books and winter books lists for many years. So my recommendations are books published in the last decade or so, probably all available online um, and might well be worth looking at. But um, I was thinking when I was went up to university, um, I was sent, um, oh, actually, yes, I think actually when I went started on PPE, I was advised on some books, uh, which are broadly speaking um, in the areas of politics and economics and very long history of human societies. And so I thought of five books which fall into that, that category. So two are two books that I particularly enjoyed on long-term human history. One, and both, these are all well-known books, so none of this will be very surprising. One was Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, and the other is Yuval Harari's Sapiens, which I think is far and away his best book. And I think they're both extraordinary books. There's lots of other literature in that general area, of long-term human culture and history. But I think it gives you a historical reference point where we are in the big human story, uh, which I think is invaluable. And Diamond is particularly important because he brings the environment so squarely into human history. And then there are three books by three Central European intellectuals all working in the middle of the 20th century on what I think of as the most fundamental questions in political economy with radically different perspectives, which I've gone back to in a book I'm writing at the moment about democracy and capitalism. So one of them is one of the books I read actually when I was uh, in the 60s, and I still think it's very relevant, Joseph Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. And the other two are really two offsetting books, taking a diametrically opposed view of the future, uh, both written in the Second World War. One is uh, Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom, and the anti-Hayek is Karl Polanyi's The Great Transformation. Uh, I think if you read those three books, you get a really extraordinary sense of the sort of deep intellectual and cultural history within which the current debates about socialism, the market, um, globalization, all the rest of it, anti-globalization, in which you can set those uh, uh, debates, which are, I think, of fundamental importance to our future. So I think those five books would, uh, and I'm assuming that they're all, all so old that most of you won't have read them, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, um, and there won't be an equation, I think, in any of them. So it will be a break from normal um, uh, normal economics. And as I said, the more recent books um, uh, that are on economics, which have interested me, are all on my lists. And, uh, and I think there have been some fascinating books recently on where we are. Piketty's work and so forth. Uh, but these five books, I think, would uh, probably you could knock off in a couple of weeks. And I think uh, if you haven't read them before, will make you think. 
And last but not least, what gives you hope? I think the answer to that is life. Well, there are, perhaps there are two answers to that. So let's give one other. I'm sort of with, I'm basically with uh, Steven Pinker in the view, I think it's pretty clear that in the great sweep of things, um, most humans live better lives with more hope for personal fulfillment, with more hope for being able to do what they want and live according to their lights today than ever before. More as a proportion, of course, there are far more humans, which is itself a bit of an issue. And you know, I remind people that from as far as we know, in 1800, of the then roughly a billion people on the world, about 90% lived in what we would consider absolute poverty or total destitution on the margin of daily survival, even in a country like Britain. And now that's down to maybe 10%. So this is, and a lot of improvement has gone with that in many, many dimensions. Think of universal education. The vast majority of human beings were illiterate, even 50, 60, 70 years ago. Now that's no longer true. So the first thing that gives me hope is that, in my view, we really have made, despite all our failures, progress. And the second one, as I said, is life, which is it will go on. Whatever happens to me, I know what's going to happen to me in the not-too-distant future. Other people will take up the torch in very different ways. They will continue to be human and make the mistakes humans have done, but they will build on the learning, the discoveries, the inventions of the past, as human beings do. This is what makes our species so remarkable. And in building on this, they will probably find ways in the end of making things better and avoiding catastrophe. Um, now, am I confident of that when I look at climate and nuclear war and so forth? No. Uh, but what gives me hope is the fact, is where we've got to and the capacity for human life, for humans to solve problems and for life to go on in ways that allow those problems to be solved and difficulties overcome. Do I, am I really confident of this? No, but you asked me what, what gives me hope. Those two things give me hope. Mr. Martin Wolf, thank you for your time. Pleasure. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next time.